Uh, tonight is kind of an interesting night, and it's kind of a contemplative night. It's kind of a reflective night. Um, it's a night where we're beginning to prepare our hearts for what Christians, for what the people of God have been celebrating for thousands of years, for almost 2,000 years, that the people of God have been celebrating what happened on that rugged cross, on that Roman execution device, and then what happened three days later when Jesus rose from the grave and the church, the movement that God was starting exploded. And for 2,000 years, the people of God have spent this week leading up to Easter preparing our hearts for that. And students, I wanna challenge you to get in the habit of doing this every Easter and maybe even just beginning right now to spend time this week, maybe it means waking up in the morning and reading some of the scripture verses that tell the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographical, historical accounts of the life of Jesus, every single one of them tell in detail what happened on that Friday. Maybe this week, maybe this week from here on out, you need to wake up each morning and read that story and begin to prepare your heart and begin to prepare your mind, begin to think and examine and wonder, what does it mean that that happened 2,000 years ago? And some of you have been growing up in it your whole life, and you've heard that story over and over and over again. Well, that story should never, ever, ever get old, because that story changed the game and continues to change our lives over and over and over again. What we're going to do, and this was all Alyssa's leading, this was Alyssa's idea, is we are going to take the next few minutes... And we are going to look at the seven words they're called, or the seven phrases that Jesus says while he's on the cross. So we're going to specifically look at his time on the cross using the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which again are the historical accounts of the life of Jesus. We're going to notice the seven different phrases that Jesus says once he's up on the cross. To begin that, I want to kind of I want to, I want to frame what we're hoping to, and this, this was part of Alyssa's dream for tonight. That after tonight, that each one of us would recognize that we've been rescued through the sacrifice of Jesus, that we've been renewed by the spirit, that, this, that the Holy Spirit making this story alive in us again and reminding us of the significance and the power behind it, that it actually renews us. And then lastly, that we would be revived. It's kind of interesting because we, we pray this a lot when we open up the word of God, that God would comfort us, that he would convict us and that he would change us. That once we leave this room, my goal is that you and me alike, that because we've gathered, because we've read his word, that something will be different. The way we interact with our boyfriends and girlfriends, the way we spend our time, the way we think about people, whether we gossip or don't, how we handle conflicts, it should all be affected by what God is teaching us in his word. So that's our hope for tonight. And here's kind of our big idea, that if you're taking notes, and I want you to be thinking about this all week that Jesus did for you what only he could do. That Jesus did for you what only he could do. And we're going to see that in scripture. We're going to see how Jesus did something for us that nobody else, no one else could ever do. And it begins with the first statement that Jesus says on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 34 says this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Here's a little context. Around the year 4 BC, Jesus is born. Jesus grows up in a 
in a good Jewish home and he learns about God and people aren't totally aware yet that he's God and he begins teaching and he begins healing and he begins telling a story about how there is a kingdom that is different than the Roman kingdom it's different than the kingdom that is your career or your tribe or your family, but there is a kingdom of God that he is ushering in, that he is beginning, that every single person is invited into. That meaning and purpose and identity and hope, all of it is found in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing and every single person is invited into it. And as he's teaching about this kingdom, and we've been talking about it in the revolutionary way, as he's teaching what it means to actually follow him, he begins to drop these hints to those who are listening closely, and he'll say things like, you know, soon, soon I'll be arrested. Soon I'll be crucified, and on the third day I'll rise. And his disciples are going, Jesus, we never let that happen to you. There's no way we're going to let that happen to you. And he keeps dropping hints and said, soon you'll see that I'll be arrested, I'll be put on trial, I'll be murdered, and I'll ultimately rise from the dead. Well, what happened around the year 30 AD is finally a group of Jews and a group of Romans, they got together, and they used to be enemies, but now they have a new common enemy, and it's Jesus. And the reason that Jesus is their enemy is because for the Jews, Jesus is claiming to be God, and they don't like that because that disrupts everything about their belief system. You ever had anybody kind of just wreck your world a little bit? As somebody drops a bomb on you, someone shares some news with you, and it changes everything for you? Well, that's what Jesus was doing, and the Jewish people were not okay with that. And Jesus was crazy, man. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God in a bod, right? That was good, you guys. God in a bod. He's claiming that as a human being, he was also 100% God. Well, these Romans, these Romans, they hated him also. Because for the Romans, they believed Caesar was God. Caesar was the head honcho. He's the godfather. He's the top dog. He's who we should be worshiping. And Jesus said, nah, Caesar's got nothing on me. Caesar can't touch this. No, 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 can't touch this. Caesar, Caesar's got nothing. And he's claiming to be God. And so the Romans and the Jews, they get together and they say, let's squash this guy. Let's get rid of him. So around the year 30 AD, they arrest Jesus. And they put on this mock trial. And they get him before a really important governor named Pilate. And Pilate says, man, why, why is this guy in front of me? I, I don't know what he's doing. What, what has he done wrong? And the crowds, they just start chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And nowadays in our modern world, we don't even know what crucifixion is. But crucifixion back in the first century was the worst, the most humiliating, the most painful way to die. In fact, the word excruciating, which we've all probably used to describe like when we stubbed our toe, right? Like it's, it's excruciating, right? Like you're dying, right? The word excruciating in the Greek language actually means out of crucifixion. So this idea, whatever you would think of in terms of what kind of pain would actually be excruciating, unbearable. At its root, at its root, that's what crucifixion was. You see, for Jesus, he knew a lot about crucifixion. In the year 160 BC, 160 years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene, there's this revolt. There's this Maccabean revolt and there's these Jews who wanna, who wanna take over their land and wanna, wanna, wanna regain control from, from Rome and, and a bunch of them are crucified. 
And then in the year 40 BC, in the year 40 BC, it's recorded that Rome, that Rome crucified 2,000 people. They lined them up for miles, 2,000 people. And what they do in these crucifixions is they would, just like a cross similar to that, they'd lay them down and they would feel for the depression in their wrist. And they would take a big nail and they would drive the nail through the wrist and into the board. They would then stretch out this hand as, as this arm is experiencing excruciating pain. They would stretch out this arm and they would feel for the depression in the wrist and they would do the same thing. And then they'd hoist the person up and they'd actually put one foot over the other and they would drive one last nail right through both of their feet. And at that point, the person is considered crucified. But the thing with crucifixion is it's a slow death. And you don't die from blood loss. You actually die from suffocation. Because you see, you spend the next, for some people, it was days that you would spend on this cross and you would lift yourself up to take a breath and that would put excruciating pain on your feet. Then you would let yourself down exhaling and that would put excruciating pain on your wrists and you would continue to do this for days. Well, Jesus was first flogged. He was whipped, brutally beaten, and then he was put on a cross. Now, there's different theories about crosses and whether crosses were really elevated or whether they were at eye level, I think, I think in most cases they were eye level. Because I think to be eye level is the most humiliating kind of death. So what they would have done is they would have put Jesus up on this cross. And as we see in this verse, they stripped him naked. This Jesus who created the world, who created each one of you, who knows your name, who loves you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, as scripture says, who has a purpose and a plan for you, this same God is up on a cross. And the first words out of his mouth are this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. The thing is, it wasn't just the Jews and the Romans of that day that put him up on that cross. But I put him up on that cross. And you put him up on that cross. We, the whole world, put Jesus up on that cross. That every single one of us are responsible for those nails, that we're responsible for that sacrifice. Because you see, there was this distance between us and God, and there is a distance between us and God, and it's called sin. And sin is every time you and I say, hey, I'll take the driving wheel. I, I got it from here, Lord. Man, God, you call me to, to interact this way in my relationships? No, thanks, I'll do it. That God, you tell me to be honest with my parents, to love and serve, now I'm just gonna do my own thing, I'm gonna be selfish. Every time we hurt somebody, every time we attack somebody, every time we think a broken thought, it's indicative of the, of the sinful, broken world that we live in. And because God loved us so much, he put himself up on a cross. And the first words out of his mouth are not judgment. They're not guilt. And maybe some of you have been in churches before where you feel like the pastor or the preacher is just condemning you. But notice what Jesus' first words, he's up on the cross and he's only there because of you and me. 
That wasn't like a, a free day. You know, that wasn't a fun day. That wasn't like, hey, that'd be kind of cool to try out. No, no, no. That's the worst day ever. But Jesus is up on that cross because he loves us. And his first words out of his mouth to you right now are this, Father, forgive them. In a sense, Jesus is saying, Father, remember, this, it is this task that, that forgives them. Use it to forgive them. How beautiful is that? That your Jesus and my Jesus, who we serve and love, his first words are, Father, forgive them. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. What's crazy, though, is Jesus is also quoting from Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22, there was written about a thousand years before Jesus says this, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Isn't that crazy? It says they pierce my hands and my feet. This is literally written thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And Jesus didn't like invent crucifixion. He wasn't like, hey, Rome, I really want to fulfill this awesome scripture. Could you just drive a nail right here? No, no, no. This was already in existence. And it says, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. And then check out this part. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Father, forgive them. They do not what they're doing. And they divided up my clothes by casting lots. See what happened there? Things that were completely outside of Jesus's control that were told, that were foretold thousand years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene are fulfilled in that moment. Statement number two that Jesus says on the cross is this. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What's going on here is Jesus, when he was crucified, scriptures tell us that there was a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right. And the scriptures don't tell us what exactly they had done to deserve that punishment, but we can infer a little bit. You see, crucifixions, this is powerful, you guys. Crucifixions, they were reserved for the most violent and offensive of criminals. I mean, crucifixions were not for like a little neighborhood tagging or you stealing a little candy bar or you pinch your brother. You know, or you, or you lie about something to your parents. I mean, crucifixion was reserved for violent criminals, for terrorists. This is powerful. For people who the world would look at and say, I am so glad they are no longer here. You could fill in the blank, but these are for the most violent of offenders. They are the ones who deserve crucifixion. And because Jesus was classified as a terrorist, because he was saying, Caesar is not God, I am God, he found himself up on a cross with these other criminals who would have done unspeakable, unforgivable things in our eyes. Things we would look at and say, I never want to be in a relationship with that person. That person is so far from God. I'm so glad they are no longer here on planet Earth one of them, one of them says to Jesus in his last moments when he could not do anything to fix his wrongs, he says to Jesus, will you remember me? Will you remember me when your kingdom comes? And Jesus says this to a violent offender, truly I tell you today 
you will be with me in paradise. There is a picture of grace here that none of us could ever fully attain or understand. There is a kind of forgiveness offered in Jesus that blows my mind. What Jesus is saying here is it doesn't matter what you've done in this room. It doesn't matter what unspeakable thing you have done and participated in. That if you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I want your forgiveness. I want new life. And it doesn't matter if you're on your deathbed or if you're doing it right now. That Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That today you will be given eternal life. So brothers and sisters, I don't know what you walked in this room with on your shoulders. I don't know what kind of sin and brokenness weighs on you right now. I don't know what kind of things you've done this week, this year, last year, that you think about over and over and over again in your mind. And, and, and it's the thing that you've done that has absolutely convinced you that God either doesn't love you or he'll never look at you the same. And yet Jesus says to these criminals who have done far worse than we could ever imagine, and he says, truly, today you'll be with me in paradise. That promise of eternal life, of true forgiveness, is offered to every single one of us. Statement number three is this. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Here's Jesus again, up on a cross. I mean, after he'd been so badly beaten. You ever been in like, you ever been in a painful situation? You ever feel like you're out of breath, like, Ethan Landa just ran, what'd you run, a half mile? He ran a half, I mean, a half mile. <laughs> That's, he ran a half mile. Give it up for Ethan, you guys. It's really a, a big accomplishment. It's a really big, I'm sorry. He ran a half marathon, a half marathon, okay? Something I could never, ever, 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 ever dream of doing. That is absolute torture at its worst. That's the worst thing. But Ethan Landa, let me ask you a question. At the end of that, were you like really excited to talk with people? You're like out of breath, like you're out of breath right now just thinking about it, you know what I mean? Like he's about to pass out from remembering that experience. Think about, think about a time when, man, you, all of your energy was gone and you had nothing left in you. Are you the kindest in those moments? Or some of you, I wanna ask you a question. How many of you, how many of you are morning people? Raise your hand if you're a morning person. Okay, raise your hand if you're willing to admit, Mackie and I kind of talk about this, everyone has like an alter ego sometimes in the morning, like when they're really evil. Mackie's, what, what, do you, what do your friends call it? Trina. So Mackie is Trina, and that's like evil. You know what I mean? That's really evil. How many of you are just straight evil in the morning when you wake up? Raise your hand. Okay, now, now, here's what I want you to think about. Hey, stay with me, Soleil. Okay, Soleil, come here. Soleil, say, stay with me, stay with me. Okay, <laughs> stay with me. Now, Trina, Trina, whatever your Trina is, whatever that moment is, where you're just at your worst, are you like, are you naturally thinking, man, I can't wait to bless somebody right now. Man, I can't wait to love on somebody. Uh, are, are, you, are you ever in those moments and then thinking, man, how does somebody else need me? How can I love and serve somebody? No, no, no. But Jesus, at his worst moment, 
at his most painful moment, at his most exhausted moment, he looks at his mom. I mean, just think about this. And you don't have kids, so I don't know. But like, I just think about like my parents. I think about me watching one of my kids go through this. I mean, it'd be just the worst thing in the world. And he looks at his mom, his biological mom who raised him. And he looks at her and he goes, hey mom, you're gonna be okay. Hey mom, I know in the first century world, the thought of you being alone without me to take care of you, because we don't really read about Joseph, we don't actually know where he is at this point. That Mary, his mom, would have been depending on Jesus to kind of provide for her and take care of her. And so she's just suffering because she's watching him on a cross, but he knows that there's a future unknown, that there's some uncertainty. And he goes, hey mom, it's gonna be okay. I got this guy, John, he's kind of my favorite disciple. He's really cool. I love him. He loves me. And he's gonna take care of you. I mean, like what is that? What, what kind of picture is that of who Jesus is? Sometimes we feel like maybe in light of a sermon like this or the cross, we're just like, oh man, my needs are so small. And, and honestly, they are, right? They are. And so was Mary's. Mary's needs were so small in comparison to what was happening on the cross. And yet Jesus didn't bypass her need. He didn't overlook it. So what do you need right now? Where are you suffering? Where are you struggling? And I think Jesus wants to meet you there just like he met Mary. Number four is this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting Psalm 22 again. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. This has given us a picture that he is, at this point, so bloody and so tired and so worn out that people can't even understand what he's saying. But at this moment, at this moment, it's noon. And it says from noon until three, so it's at the end of three. Scripture tells us in the Gospel of Mark that the crucifixion began at 9 a.m. So if it's 9 a.m. till three, how long has Jesus been on the cross? Six hours. Most of you can't stand going to school for six hours. Right? Jesus is on a flipping cross for six hours. And at the end of that, he's going, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he's feeling the weight of our sin. And you know this. You know that sin creates distance between you and your friends. Well, sin creates distance between you and God. And at that moment, Jesus is feeling the weight of all the sin. It's past the pain. And it's into the reality that he is carrying the sin of the world on his shoulders. And he is feeling a disconnect from God that he had never felt before in his entire life. You ever thought about that? That Jesus had always been close to the Father. But for the first time in his life, he feels totally disconnected. Number, continuing number four, 2 Corinthians, Paul summarizes it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, scripture says that Jesus was absolutely perfect. He had no sin in his life, but God made him sin even though he had no sin, 
to be the sin for us so that we might be free. Number five is this. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says his fifth statement on the cross, I am thirsty. And I love this one because it reminds us of the humanity of Jesus. It reminds us that while he was 100% God, he was 100% man. And he's lost a lot of blood. He's suffered greatly. And he's thirsty. The next verses tell us that they, they took a sponge and they attached it to a stick and they, they dipped it in some vinegar wine. And some scriptures will say that they lifted it up to Jesus. And that's why some people think maybe the cross was elevated. They lifted it up to Jesus. But that's not, that's not what the Greek says, actually. The Greek says that they brought it to Jesus, that they offered it to Jesus. And so I think what they're doing in this moment is they're trying to keep as much distance from Jesus as possible because they don't want to humanize him at all. They want to make him feel like this just distant other. They don't want to come close to him. And so they attach it to this stick like you would a dog, like you would something that has some disease that you never want to be around, and they offer it to Jesus. Number six, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come up and play as we transition. The sixth statement Jesus says is, it is finished. And this is one of the most beautiful phrases in all of scripture because what Jesus is saying is what has been finished is you and I's debt. That the distance between us and God, the thing that gets in the way, it is finished. You see, this is where Jesus did for you what only he could do. He did for you what your salary could never do. He did for you what your girlfriend or boyfriend could never do. He did for you what your life circumstances could never do for you. And he said, all that sin and all that brokenness and all that death, it is finished. That Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan and selfishness and everything that gets in the way between you and God and me and God, he squashed it all so that we, we could live. In the last statement, on the cross, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Notice how Jesus refers to his God, he says, Father. Some of you need to be reminded that your God is your Father who loves you. See, Jesus knew that he could trust God, that he could trust himself as he is God because God was doing a greater work on the cross than Rome or the Jews, or you and I, man. Man, we said, let's put Jesus on the cross because I don't want to hear what he has to say. I don't want to deal with that. But then God does this great reversal. And he says, it will be through the cross. It will be through the shameful Roman execution device that I will offer salvation to people, that I will save people. You see, Jesus did for you what only he could do. No one else can save you. No one else can clean you. Scripture says that, that if you believe in your heart and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he actually died from the cross and then three days later rose from the grave, 
that he proved that he's the God of the universe, that if you believe that in your heart and if you confess it with your mouth, that you're saved and that you are given eternal life. 